The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, as is obvious already by now, you know that today is Reformation Sunday. It was on this coming Saturday, 503 years ago, on October 31, 15. 17, that Martin Luther did nail his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. As Joe said, these were complaints against the Roman Catholic Church, complaints against the abuses that were taking place and the corruption that was taking place in the church of that day. Luther never intended to spark a revolution. He just intended for there to be reform in the church. But what happened was truly a reformation. It was known as the Protestant Reformation. It's the greatest awakening that has ever occurred in the history of the church. And it's uh, an event that we celebrate here at Maranatha. Once a year, we take one Sunday to Uh, Just commemorate what God did in recovering the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel which had been obscured for centuries by all kinds of corruption and confusion within the Catholic Church. It is that day that the light of the gospel truly broke forth out of darkness. And there is a rally cry of the Reformation that was often said at that time, post-Tenebras Luke's. After darkness, light. After a thousand years of spiritual darkness, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ broke through, and God shined His mercy and His grace in the blessed news of the salvation of Jesus Christ, which had been for decades and centuries obscured. We are a Protestant church. And so we want to take some time just to commemorate what God has done in that event. We've preached through all five solas here in the past, and last year we began what we've entitled the series uh, known as the Portraits of the Reformation. And we're taking one Reformation personality a year, and we're just uh, kind of studying that individual, and we're looking at what God did through that person's life. I think it's appropriate for us to do this. We're not celebrating the individual. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have such a great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There is, in that context, of course, a reference to the previous chapter, Hebrews 11, where we look at those who have gone before us in that chapter and live by faith. But certainly there's a principle as well in that for all of us that we learn from those who have gone before us in defending the faith. So if you were here last year, I'm going to see if you remember who we talked about last year. John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was the first Reformation personality that we looked at. He was the morning star of the Reformation. He sowed some of those very first seeds that ultimately germinated in the Reformation when Martin Luther came on the scene. This morning, I want to introduce you to another man by the name of John Huss, the goose that became a swan. I'll explain that in just a moment. Like Wycliffe, Huss was a pre-reformer. 
He was a forerunner of the Reformation. He was a precursor to the Reformation. In fact, he lived and died about 100 years before Luther penned his 95 theses. So he was a pre-Reformation reformer. What I want to do for a few moments this morning is I want to just give you some background on who he is. I want to tell you a little bit about his life and his ministry, and then I want to draw some implications for you. So this will be a little bit different, not walking through a text this morning as much as we are looking at this individual. John Huss was born somewhere between 1369 and 1372. We don't exactly know. In fact, he didn't even exactly know uh, the date of his birth, somewhere between 1369 and 1372. He was born to very poor peasant parents. In Bohemia. Bohemia is what is today modern day Czech Republic. He was raised in the town of Husinek, which is where he got his last name, John Hus. He took the name of the village that he was raised in, Husinek, and he took the first part of that, and that's his last name, John Hus. And Hus means goose. He was raised in Gooseville, he was raised in Goose Town. He started school when he was 13, and he was a good student. He loved learning. He loved studying. He loved immersing himself in uh, the studies, and so he vowed that he would give himself to the priesthood. He would become a priest for a couple reasons. One, so that he could continue his studies, and also so that he could actually have an income. He was raised in a very poor family, so his thought was he could have a good livelihood if he engaged in the role of a priest. And so he went off to school, earned his bachelor's degree in 1393, then a master's degree in 1396, and then finally a doctorate. And it was at that time that he was actually ordained to the priesthood in 1401 when he was about 30 years old. And as soon as he was ordained to the priesthood, he began teaching in the University of Prague. He taught there as a faculty member, and he also preached at the Bethlehem Chapel on Sundays in Prague. And what's unique about this is if you were raised in the Catholic Church in that day, you would have attended likely a church service, which was only in Latin, and you would have not understood one thing that was being said. Even the priests sometimes didn't even understand what they were saying. But Huss preached in the language of the people. He preached in Czech. And so he became the most popular preacher in Prague at that time. Up to 3,000 people would come to hear him preach the Word of God. And what's significant is he was undergoing a significant change at that time. Even he wasn't fully aware of it, but he was coming under the influence of the writings of John Wycliffe the man that we looked at last year, the morning star of the Reformation. He began reading Wycliffe, and Wycliffe was, of course, the English reformer. He was the one who was in England, and he was writing about, speaking about, and preaching against the Roman Catholic abuses. So Huss comes into contact with Wycliffe's writings in a very unique way. What I love about this is how God sovereignly orchestrates the events that need to take place in order for him to accomplish his purposes. So here's how John Huss in Prague came in contact with the writings of John Wycliffe, who was in and had been in England. The University of Prague was founded about 50 years before John Huss actually began teaching there. 
It was founded by the Roman Emperor Charles IV in 1348, and in a good uh, a gesture of goodwill, the emperor's daughter Anne married King Richard II of England, and that brought Bohemia and England into a close relationship. So there was this partnership, this alliance between England and Bohemia, and it resulted in what we still have today, student exchange programs. Students from Bohemia would go to England and study for a while, study abroad. There would be students who would go from England to Bohemia and study for a while, and that's exactly what took place. There were Czech students who were invited to study at Oxford, England through that exchange program, and that put them in contact with the writings of John Wycliffe, who had taught at Oxford. So they're beginning to hear of Wycliffe. They're reading Wycliffe's writings. And when they go back home to Bohemia, guess what they take with them? They take the writings of John Wycliffe. And so these students go back to Prague. They go back to Bohemia. And they're bringing copies and and books written by Wycliffe about how he's denouncing the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. And, And Huss is one of the people who comes in contact with Wycliffe's writings. He begins to read them. He begins to absorb them. And he begins to copy them by hand. In fact, there are still today five handwritten copies in the writing of John Huss of Wycliffe's complete works. They're still extant in the Stockholm Royal Library. You can go and see them there. He, through this tedious process, would actually copy all of Wycliffe's works. So not only was he reading them, and not only was he copying them, he was absorbing them. And as he absorbed them, he began to teach them. He began to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the more he read, and the more he studied, and the more he came to love the word of God through the influence of Wycliffe, the more outspoken in his critiques of the Catholic Church he became. He began to see in Bohemia the same abuses within the Catholic Church that Wycliffe had seen in England. And so what I want to do for just a few moments is I want you to understand what it would have been like to live in medieval Europe. I don't think most of us living 500 years post-Reformation have really any clue of what it was like to live under the Roman Catholic system. We don't know what that was really like. So let me give you a brief overview of that time period. Let me just set the stage for you. And I want you to imagine what it would have been like to live under this system. The most serious issue prior to the Reformation was that of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the the fact that Christ has come and lived among us and walked among us and lived a perfect life and went to the cross and died in the place for sinners and was resurrected from the grave and all who will place their faith and trust in him will be saved and be forgiven and the very righteousness of Jesus Christ will be credited to their account because his work of sacrifice takes care of our sin. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was obscured in medieval Europe. Layer upon layer of outward ceremony and human tradition had been 
piled on top of that true gospel. There were hoops you had to jump through. There were sacraments to participate in. There was all kind of superstition and corruption surrounding the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a workspace system. It's not that Rome didn't believe in Jesus. It's not that Rome didn't believe in faith. It's not that Rome didn't believe in the gospel. It's not that Rome didn't teach about faith and grace in the Bible. It's that Rome taught that you had to have those things plus their whole system. So it was salvation by works. It was salvation by Mary. It was salvation by the Pope. It was salvation through tradition and human effort and everything else that was a part of that system. So the gospel was veiled. Added to that head of the Roman Catholic Church is the Pope. Wycliffe says, no, it's the church is headed by Christ. And Huss comes along and says, no, the head of the church is Jesus Christ. But the Pope in that day was really the head of the world. He was Christ's vicar, Christ's representative on earth. The idea was that Peter was the first pope, and every pope in the line of papal succession from Peter came in Peter's authority. So what the pope said went. He had all power. He had all authority. And essentially, he was the one who turned on the taps of grace. And that grace came to you through the seven sacraments, through baptism, confirmation, mass, penance, marriage, ordination, and last rites. And if you stood under that tap of grace in the Roman Catholic system, you would supposedly have grace conferred to you through your participation in those sacraments. What was really central to this whole system was the Mass. And the Mass was that time in the service when Christ's body would essentially be re-sacrificed It would be an unbloody sacrifice. He he would be re-offered to God as the atoning sacrifice. He would be re-sacrificed to deal with the sins of that day. That that was really the focus of the Mass. The problem was you didn't have an actual body of Jesus Christ. And so the Catholic system solved that by the doctrine of transubstantiation, where they believe that the actual elements, the Bread and the wine were actually transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so when the priest in that service would say, this is my body, and would raise the bread, the bells would toll. And at that moment, suddenly there was supposed to be a miraculous event in which the body is transformed into, the, the bread is transformed into the body of Christ. If in that moment you looked at that bread, you were suddenly given grace. People, though, were not allowed to participate in the taking of the elements, except once a year they were given bread to eat, but they were never allowed to drink from the cup because, heaven forbid, some klutz spill the blood of Jesus on the floor. So they never got to participate in the communion itself. The whole point of this was you have to make yourself better and better and better. And you have to work your way towards justification by your participation in these events. The problem was you still had sins that needed to be confessed. Because ultimately it couldn't be perfect and taken away. So there was this confession where you would go in and confess your sins to the priest. And he would ask you probing questions about what was going on in your heart and what was going on in your soul. And he would 
ask difficult questions that would penetrate to your inner person, and you would be asked questions like, have you loved relatives or friends more than God? Have you complained against God because of the weather or illness or poverty? This all amounted in showing people really not that they were forgiven, but how unrighteous they really were. So, in order to deal with that, once a person died, there was no confidence that you would ultimately be righteous enough to get into heaven. But that's okay because there's the doctrine of purgatory where you would go to have your sins slowly purged over time, over millennia, over thousands of years, where you would slowly have your sins taken away from you in this temporary holding place. And the way you could accelerate your time in purgatory was to engage in indulgences or participating in purchasing indulgences. If you were alive, you would do that for people who had gone before you. If you were dead, you would hope that some would purchase indulgences for you where you could have someone pay some money to the church. And because there was the assumption that there were some very godly people called the saints who had actually made their way to heaven first without having gone to purgatory, that there was some merit stored up in heaven for you in what's called the treasury of merit. And the Pope had the opportunity to dispense that merit to you if you were willing to buy the indulgence. This is the treasury of merit. Added to this, of course, was the veneration of saints, the worship of saints, and the participation in relics where you would actually go and you would touch some relic of some saint who's passed away, where you would maybe touch a piece of clothing or touch a lock of hair or in many cases it was claimed that there was a piece of the cross in that Catholic church and there was a standing and mentality there that there were so many pieces of the true cross spread across the Holy Roman Empire that it would have been impossible for anyone to lift that cross. There was the worship of Mary. She was the mediator through whom people would approach God because Jesus was a terrifying judge. And so the way you got to Jesus was through his mother. So Mary became one who was a, essentially a co-redeemer. Added to this is the services are in Latin. The Bible is in Latin. And you can't understand anything. Imagine this. Imagine you're a sinner, desperate for forgiveness, desperate for answers to how you can have your sin taken care of, and never confident that the system would get you to where you needed to be. It was dead, it was ritualistic, it was hopeless, it was corrupt, it was powerless to save. Maybe this is even further evidenced by what became known as the Babylonian captivity of the church. For 70 years, uh, the papacy was outside of Rome. I'll give you a little history on this. I think I mentioned this last year. In 1305, a pope was elected who was a Frenchman. And uh, he decided he didn't want to move to Rome because France was a lot nicer than Rome. So he decided to be the pope from France. And so did the next pope, and the next pope, and the next pope. For 70 years, seven popes decided that they wanted to remain in 
France and fulfill their papacy from France. Well, fast forward 70 years to 1378 approximately when the Council of the Cardinals or the College of Cardinals decided this was enough. They would elect an Italian pope and it was Clement VII. And the problem with this is the previous pope, the one in France, decided I'm not stepping down because I still like being pope. So now you have two popes, one in France and one in Rome. This goes on for 36 years two popes. It's known as the papal schism. Well, in 1409, the Council of Pisa met to uh, resolve this embarrassing situation, and they decided the way to handle this situation was to depose the current existing popes and elect a new one. So let's get rid of both of them, get rid of the French pope, get rid of the Italian pope, get rid of both of them, let's elect a new one, just kind of start over. So they did that. The problem was, as you can imagine, neither of them wanted to resign, so now you have three popes. whole situation raised the question, what's the true authority in the church? Is it Christ? Is it the Word? Is it traditions? Is it councils? Is it popes? Where's the true authority in the church? This is what Huss began to realize. This is what he began to recognize. This is what Wycliffe began to recognize. They wrote about it. They studied. They they began to to immerse themselves into the Bible. They began to see what the Scriptures taught alone about the doctrine of justification, about the authority of the Word, about where true authority lies within the church. They wrote about the corruption in the clergy. He wrote about the sale of indulgences and confronted that whole system. He, He expressed doubts about the existence of purgatory and began practicing or confronting the issue of relic. The veneration of saints. Huss came to say that the true church is comprised only of the saved, the elect, the predestined. And that day, the idea was the true church was the, the pope and the cardinals and the bishops and the priests. And if you were part of the church and you were not one of those things, you were not part of the true church. Huss comes along and says, no, the true church is comprised of only the elect who are predestined to grace and glory. Huss also confronted the idea of the mass, and he knew that no no true believer could engage in the the mass because they would understand that Christ's death and sacrifice was sufficient because it was a once-for-all sacrifice. He knew Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, where it says, who does not need daily like those high priests offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The death of Christ was completely sufficient. It was a once for all sacrifice. Hebrews 9.12 says, Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. Huss began to boldly preach out against these abuses in the church. He took a firm stand upon the word of God. The Bible became his supreme authority. He stood fast on the the, the transforming, saving gospel of Jesus Christ. 
can probably imagine how well that went over in the Catholic Church. The hierarchy did not like it. And so when the Pope heard of this, he banned Huss from preaching in Bethlehem Chapel. And Huss refused to stop. He refused to obey. He simply continued preaching and ministering at the chapel. And that obviously didn't go over well. So in 1409, he is excommunicated from the Catholic Church and from the priesthood. Not only that, but the Pope at that time, Alexander V, put the city of Prague under an interdict, which means that no sacraments could be performed in that city, no baptisms, no communion, no mass, no last rites, no burials on church grounds, none of that. They would be unable to practice the sacraments in the city. Now, you have to understand, in that day, the people believed that that was the means of their salvation. They believed that in order to get to God, in order to get to heaven, you needed to practice the sacraments. And so if there's no sacraments, there's no way to heaven. So the city erupted in an uproar because they believed that to be cut off from the church was equivalent to being cut off from God himself. And so in 1412, John Huss chooses to leave Prague. He felt it better to spare the city and to leave than to continue to stay there and cause all kinds of uproar. So he moves to the countryside, to the city of Krakowic. He was there for two years, and he wrote during those two years some of his most important works. He wrote a book on the church in which he argued that Christ alone is head of the church, and another book on simony. It was soon after that that his life would take a very critical turn. Remember the papal schism? There was a council that tried to deal with that, that Council of Pisa in 1409 tried to deal with that issue but were unable to, which resulted in the three popes. And so by 1414, they realized they had to deal with this embarrassing situation. So the Council of Constance is is formed And they had two things on the agenda. Number one was to deal with this papal schism issue. And number two was to deal with heretics. So in 1414, they assemble. This is in Germany. They finally do resolve the papal schism issue. And a new pope who deposes all three of those popes, Martin V, is put into his office as pope. So that issue is resolved. You still have the issue of the heretics. And top on the list is John Huss. They were not happy. They wanted to silence him. And so they invite him to attend the Council of Constance. He didn't want to go because he knew what he would be facing. But he was offered safe passage. He was guaranteed a safe trip there by the Pope himself. And so he reluctantly goes to the council. He's immediately arrested, put in chains, imprisoned. 
few weeks later, he's put on trial and he's asked to recant his views. There was no trial even. It was not really even a hearing of any kind. It was more of just, you need to recant your views, which he refused to do. And so he was condemned as a heretic. He was condemned because he believed that Christ is the head of the church. And he was condemned because he believed in the authority of the scriptures over the Roman Catholic system. And he believed that congregational singing need to be restored to the church. You realize before that they didn't sing songs like we sang this morning? For all those reasons, he was branded a heretic. He was brought to trial again in July 1 of 1415 and given another opportunity to recant. But he wouldn't, and so he was sentenced to be burned alive at the stake. Five days later, on July 6, 1415, that's what happened. Let me read it to you. Huss was brought to the cathedral where the emperor, dressed in full regalia, was sitting on the throne. The charges against Huss were summarized, and when he protested the facts, he was told to keep quiet. After being instructed to stand on a table, he was mocked and cursed. A tall paper crown was placed on his head. The crown was painted with three devils fighting for the possession of a soul and the words, the chief of heretics. The bishops committed his soul to the devil, but Huss replied, and I commit it to the most merciful Lord Jesus Christ. The emperor then turned him over to the executioners, and when he arrived at the place where he would be put to death, he knelt and he prayed, and for the last time he was asked if he would recant. He replied, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. In the truth of the gospel, I have written, taught, and preached. Today I will gladly die. They disrobed him, tied his hands behind his back, and bound his neck to the stake with a rusty chain. He commented with a smile that his Savior had been bound with a heavier chain. The executioners placed wood interspersed with straw all the way up to his chin, and when the fire was lit, he began to sing, Christ, thou, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. And then Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy on me. He began a prayer he did not finish, for the wind blew the flame into his face. And he continued to pray silently until he died a short time later. After his body was fully consumed by the flames, the executioners scooped up his ashes and tossed them into the Rhine River so that nothing would remain of this heretic. And so ended the life of this pre-Reformation reformer. And now you know where the phrase, your goose is cooked, comes from. It means you're in big trouble and all hope is gone. What's marvelous about this is it didn't end his influence, and it didn't end his impact. 
And you might be wondering from the title of the sermon, The Goose That Became a Swan, what does this have to do with the swan? Well, Huss was the goose. But there's one thing that Huss reportedly said while he was burning, just moments before he died, a priest who was there watching it said that he said, you can cook this goose, but within a century, a swan will arise who will prevail. 102 years later, on October 15, October 31, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his theses on the door of the castle church. Luther was a Hussite. Luther had read John Huss, and John Huss had become to Luther a hero. In fact, Luther later, later wrote of him, I was overwhelmed with astonishment. I could not understand for what cause they had burnt so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. In fact, Luther saw himself as the fulfillment of the prediction of John Huss that a swan would arise. In fact, Luther was often portrayed as a swan. That's the story of how a goose turned into a swan. So what in the world does that have to do with us? I'm going to give you three implications. Three things that we can practice, employ, learn from as we look at the Protestant Reformation and specifically at the life and ministry of John Huss. Let me close with three of these lessons that I think will be instructive for us as we look back on his life and ministry. Number one, Scripture alone is our authority. Scripture alone is our authority. If we learn anything from the life and ministry of John Huss, we were reminded of the fact that at the center and the core of the life of the church is the Word of God. Not popes, not councils, not traditions, nothing but the Word of God. This is what Huss drove, what drove him. This is what compelled him. He had an absolutely undying commitment to the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And the more he read it, the more he loved it. And the more he learned about it, the more convinced he became of its authority and its sufficiency. He was a man who was gripped by an allegiance to the truth of the Word of God, not to councils and not to an institution, but to the book. He was a man under authority. He was a man committed to the truth. In fact, three years before his death, he said, I have said that I would not, for a chapel full of gold, recede from the truth. I know that the truth stands and is mighty forever and abides eternally, with whom there is no respect of person. Huss made every effort to ground his life ground his theology, and ground the practice of the church in the authoritative, sufficient word of God. And beloved, I would argue that we need the same today. We need men and women and young people and families and churches that have this same conviction. Because we're living in a day when that's not the truth. 
even within the church, there are few who have this strong conviction. You say, how do you know that? How can you say that? Because there are many within the body of Christ who don't believe that the Bible is truth anymore. There are people within the body of Christ who don't believe what the Bible says about how the universe was created. There are Christians within the church who don't believe that God is full of wrath and against sin. They don't believe in eternal punishment. They don't believe anymore in substitutionary atonement. There are people within the church today who don't believe that Adam was a historical person. They do accept that God accepts the worship of all religions, that that biology does not determine one's gender, and there are many who have embraced the fact that race is either, you're either privileged or oppressed because you bought into the CRT intersectionality issue. There needs to be a reformation again today in the church. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know this text well. Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Notice the charge here. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Christ. That is a serious accountability. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Beloved, that's where we live today. The church wants their ears tickled. The church wants to be entertained. The church wants to be told that it's not as bad as we make it out to be and sin's not that serious. You need to preach the truth. You need to hold the truth firmly, lovingly, but steadfastly. Number two. There is another implication we learn from the life and ministry of John Huss. It's that a clear gospel is always worth defending. A clear gospel, the only gospel, the saving gospel, the life-transforming gospel, the gospel that actually rescues sinners from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God, the true gospel that rescues sinners from hell, that gospel needs to be preached and proclaimed and defended. And when given the choice of preserving his life or preserving the gospel, Huss chose the gospel. Because he believed what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true gospel, that gospel, and that gospel alone is what rescues sinners from the wrath of God and from eternal condemnation. There is nothing else that will rescue sinners from that except the true gospel. And in every age, the gospel is going to be threatened. 
In every age, the gospel is going to be obscured. In fact, in every age, every, every age of believing believers within the church, they're going to have to fight for the purity of the gospel. It's something that we've been doing for centuries, and we have to continue. We can't let the baton fall out of our hands. We must be people who will defend the gospel. We need to state unapologetically that there is a hell, that God does punish sin, and state unashamedly there is salvation in Jesus Christ. If you will place your faith and trust in him and you will place your complete life in his hands, you will be rescued. You will be saved. That is a message that we are unashamed of and we preach with boldness and conviction. That is the only way. There is no other way. All roads do not lead to heaven. There is one way. It is the way of Jesus Christ. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. This is also what... Paul was adamant about Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Galatians 1, Paul is confronting the fact that they had abandoned the true gospel. And notice what Paul says to a people who had abandoned a true gospel, starting in verse 6. Galatians 1, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And we have said before, so I say again, now if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Paul says, what? When the gospel is being attacked, what has to happen? You have to defend it. He's confronting the Galatians here by the fact that they had adopted a works-based system, exactly what was happening in medieval Europe. That gospel needs to be protected, defended, because the church's true treasure is the gospel. The church's true treasure is not buildings or legacies. Church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, there is a third lesson that we can learn from the life and ministry of John Huss. It is that persecution cannot stamp out the gospel. Persecution cannot stamp out the gospel. You can kill the messenger, but you can't kill the message. This is, what Luther, uh, this is what Huss illustrates for us. He was martyred for standing for the true gospel, but it couldn't stop it. He, he, his death was not in vain because he planted the seeds in Bohemia in the early 1400s that became full trees during the Protestant Reformation. Persecution can't stop that. No opposition can stop that. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me show you one last verse. 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9. No power leveled against the gospel will be able to prevent it from accomplishing the purposes that God has intended. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says of his imprisonment, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. I love that. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not imprisoned. You cannot imprison it. You cannot restrict it because God is using the gospel to save lives and he will let it accomplish its purposes. No prison, no persecution, no death can stop God's use of the gospel to redeem sinners. Beloved, I think we need to remember this because the day is coming where we will become increasingly odious to this world. Where we will become increasingly hated by this world. When we will become those who are the targets of the world and we face the hostility of this post-Christian nation. We have to be confident that nothing will stop the advance of the gospel. So we preach it. And we proclaim it. And we trust that the Lord will continue to bless the proclamation of his truth. This is the life of John Huss. These are some of the things that we learned. These are some of the ways that we're blessed. These are some of the ways that we're challenged. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we, we thank you for men who have gone before us, women as well who have stood firm, who have even given their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. While we do not worship them, while we do not venerate them, Lord, we have learned much from their boldness and their integrity, their willingness even to go to death in the face of persecution. Father, we thank you for them that they have not dropped the baton. From generation to generation, the gospel baton has been passed. And Lord, it is our prayer that we would be faithful to pass it to the next generation. So let us remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil and our labor is not in vain. It's in your son's name we pray. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.